Welcome to the Dash Podcast. Thank you so much for joining me today. I have Brandon C.S. Wallace here with me, an associate professor, consultant, advocate, and activist in Upper Marlboro, Maryland. Yes, he does all those things at the same time. <laughs> so I'm really excited to talk to you uh, about Brandon. But before we do get started, I want to let you know to go to TreyGamers.com right now, and you can find a, your copy of Every Decision Counts, Eight Lessons I Wish They Taught Me in School, a new social and emotional learning workbook for middle and high school students, which is great while we are not in school right now. Um, continue to learn, continue to grow personally and academically. So with that said, go to TreyGamers.com, subscribe to the podcast, check out the book, and let's get into this conversation with Mr. Wallace. How are you doing today, sir? I am, uh, considering the times that we're in, I'm doing extremely well. So I'm blessed and I'm happy and I'm healthy and I'm safe and um, I'm doing good. How are you? How are you doing? I'm actually, I'm actually doing well also. I, I enjoyed the time to work from home. As we discussed earlier, the the e-learning piece, you know, the schools that I'm working with, it's a little bit different because you, you communicate a little more often. I've got all these little group chats going and I'm used to working in silos myself. Yeah. So I'm working on one thing. I'm not checking tabs. I'm not checking my phone. But then I, I, I check my stuff in two hours and I missed 10 messages. <laughs> you know, so I'm figuring it's like it out. that sometimes. It's like that sometimes. Absolutely. Now, now for you, you're an associate professor at Montgomery College. At uh, you're a faculty associate at Johns Hopkins. Um, yeah. You're also an adjunct professor at Prince George's Community College. Those are just the colleges that I'm talking about. How is this affecting your schedule and, and some of the things that you're doing at the college level? Well, the good news is a lot of my courses have already had some type of uh, online component to it. Gotcha. And so courses that I teach were uh, kind of nested under this idea of high flex, and high flex is like classwork and so essentially you could have joined my class either face-to-face -face or virtually through a zoom link or you could wow. have just the recording of the lesson anyway and I've been teaching like that for years and so um, I haven't skipped a beat yet uh, so instead of just the face-to-face -face option we've all really transitioned to all virtual but um, you know that's the kind of the name of my game and I think that that's one of the most important pieces to always be forward-thinking because mm -hmm. the model is not always going to work and so how can you be nimble and adaptable to what students are going to need and uh, need in perpetuity as you can see absolutely well and let's stay there for a sec you know on that college level is there a trickle down of that high flex into some of your consulting work with k-12 schools as well no not yet i don't think okay. that well you know i worked with uh, one of my jobs in my past as you can like you know my resume feels as long as, <laughs> as long as i can tell uh, but one of my jobs is I used to work for the Office of the State Superintendent of Education, which is the state education agency for the District of Columbia. And one of the things that I uh, was charged with was making sure that um, as we started just rolling out um, computer-based testing to make sure that the bandwidth was available for local education agencies. And unfortunately, um, in as much as we've kind of done a, a, a massive amount of good work around that area, we're mm -hmm. still are still as a country not where we need to be in terms of technology, technological advances and stuff like that in K-12 schools. And so that's a, one of my many, many passions. But unfortunately, I've always, I've often had to do the face-to-face -face models, old traditional models with right. stuff that I'm doing. Right. Okay. And that's, that's fair. I mean, perhaps, I mean, with the way this pandemic is going, um, that might have to be the new normal, um, high flex classroom. So you may very well be the early adopter and catalyst <laughs> going down to 
um, K-12. I'm sure that's another hand um, you can put in a pot for you. Um, it's now- super cool. It's super cool. And I have to give a shout out to my amazing, amazing colleague, Glinda hernandez Tittle. She's one of my colleagues in that work, and she's really spearheaded a lot of that stuff on the community mm-hmm. college, uh, land space. Okay. Okay. Um, shout out to Glenda Tittle. That's, That's right. Information there too. Now I do want to go through Brandon. Um, I, I kind of want to talk about high flex a little bit more, but I think we may be able to get there through your journey in education. Absolutely. I'm on LinkedIn looking at your resume and I've had to press show more experiences about three times. <laughs> I don't know how old you are. I don't know how you do all these things. Uh, but talk to me about your journey through education. Why was it so important for you as a young black man to be an educator and have a high impact in so many different areas of education? I think that, so I was a, it's interesting. My story starts out as uh, I was uh, a student with selected mutism. And so that means uh, from time to time, I just wouldn't speak. And so I was nonverbal in some of my kind of matriculation. I had an amazing sister, her name is Deity. She really took care of me. And she was really like one of my first teachers. And so she was patient, she was kind, and I always saw her as a teacher. And I remember being in elementary school and I was just like, what do I wanna be when I grow up? It was between a teacher, a singer, or a TV game host. And I know nobody knows about TV game show hosts, but they were super cool back then. Like, I thought I was gonna like run Supermarket Sweep. But um, I decided to, uh, it's interesting enough because I didn't really understand college. As a young black man, I was the first generation and um, I have an adoptive family and I have a biological family, but my, in my biological family, I was the first person to go to college. And so I didn't know what to major in. I didn't know where to go to school. I didn't know anything about fast. I didn't know anything about anything. I was like a, per, a traditional first generation student. And um, interestingly enough, I didn't think that you could major in anything else except the things that you took in high school. Hmm. And I didn't know that I could major in computer engineering because I didn't have computer engineering in, you know, I had English, gym, all these other things. So I became an English major at Bowie State University, the oldest HBCU in Maryland. Hmm. An amazing angel friend of mine, her name is Erica. She gave me a call. She was like, would you want to teach in Baltimore City? And I was just like, Baltimore City? (laughs) I was like, no, I would never do and she was like, you know, the kids need you, You're, you have the personality, you have the energy, come up here with me and teach. And so from Bowie State University, I enrolled at Johns Hopkins University and tried to get my master's, got my master's from Johns Hopkins University. But I started out as a Baltimore City public school teacher. Uh, I did some work at Central Office with uh, under Andreas Alonzo and Tisha Edwards, one of my great mentors still to this day. Um, and then after that, I decided to go and do some research on special education down in North Carolina, Charlotte. And so I some two amazing, I just had some amazingly dope mentors every step of the way. And so I was down in North Carolina um, after I was a department chairperson, an English teacher in Baltimore City for about six or seven years. Went down to North Carolina, studied autism spectrum disorder and high incidence with Diane Browder and David Tess. Came back, started my consultancy, worked uh, in Montgomery County Public Schools for a little while. I went to OSSI, the State Education Agency for D.C., I was the National Director of Urban Teachers. Then I became an associate professor. And every step of the way, I was constantly saying yes to every opportunity that people would Mm -hmm. give. And I think that that's one of the things that I try to impress upon, especially young educators. You are ready for it. You're old enough for it. You're smart enough for it. Get out there, take the leap, uh, take the um, smart risk, and just do it, and just do it. So my trajectory, my journey has always been not linear, but very, very 
all over the place, but mm-hmm. it's all over the places. I was able to do a lot of work with national assessments. I was able to do a lot of work with curricula. I was able to do a lot of the same types of things all within education, which is my passion. Yeah, I mean, that's that's absolutely amazing. I, and that's what I was going to say. I was like, man, is this all sheer luck? Is this just grinding, nose work and opportunity? But it's seizing those opportunities. And, and, you know, they say victory loves preparation. So if you're looking for it and if you're constantly preparing and open to those opportunities, once you release those expectations, they just kind of start to flow to you. So thank you for really um, pointing that out for us. And again, like there's so much here that I would, we could have a whole episode about it's everyone. too much. No, it's <laughs> let me ask you this though. What do you feel like you're the best at? What is it that you bring to the table that has such a high impact that continue to have people asking you to come and help us out, come and help us out? I think I'm the best at relationships. Mm. Once you figure out that relationships rule, I don't care who you are, what you're doing, relationships are everything. And once you figure out that relationships truly do rule, you become so prepared to do almost anything you can in terms of galvanizing your strengths to build, to create, to repair the harm that some relationships need. And so always learn that relationships are the key, whether it's a relationship with a mentor, relationships with students, relationships with the government agencies that give you money, the relationship, relationships rule. That's just one of the things that I probably my be, the best thing that I'm at, if you will, is probably like relationship building. Mm-hmm. I, you, you know what? You, you just uh, finished the rest of our episode because that's what we're <laughs> I, I believe in it so much. I mean, when I came out of college, my thing was, was public speaking. I, I saw some videos of Les Brown. I was reading my eyes oh, yeah. you know, and, and Tony Robbins and all that. I came out, joined Toastmasters did about a hundred speaking engagements over a year and a half and went up to the world championship of public speaking. But it was at that point I lost at that world championship level in the top 100. It was actually in DC. But after that is when I started to realize the impact of communication. And I actually just spoke to somebody um, yesterday, matter of fact, Jonathan Plucker at Johns Hopkins. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Awesome guy. I had him on the show a couple of weeks ago and I'll be on the Bright Now podcast soon. So shout out to Jonathan Plucker, but he was asking, you know, why isn't, and it goes with SEL, social and emotional learning in layman's terms or corporate terms is emotional intelligence and communication. Why don't we take, why isn't relationship buildings a, a priority for us in America? And same with SEL. I feel like we're starting to get there, the urban assembly, castle, some of the things we do are there, but it's not a standard yet how do we make these relationships and communications more important to our educators? It's a, that's a really good question. And of course, there's not just one way to answer it, but one of the biggest levers I think that we can use is reimagining what school should look like. And if school is going to be based on old patriarchal, white oppressive kind of systems, then we'll never get to this idea of social emotional learning. We'll never get to that Mm. idea socially responsiveness. We'll never get to the idea of universal design for learning. We'll never get to these ideas that we know are best for students. What we have to start doing is reimagining what do we want our kids to be able to do after they're done? Mm. And do we want them to, you know, be able to, you know, with mastery, create and solve algebraic expressions or equations, then cool. But if we want students to be empathic, if we want them to be thoughtful, if we want them to be self-aware, if we want them to be all all these other things, and it's interesting because we sometimes, we as society sometimes call them soft skills, but my president at Montgomery College 
uh, Dr. Pollard, Darian Pollard, she refers to them as power skills. These are power skills that kids have to have before they leave us. And if we don't start embedding that into the curriculum and then making sure that we as instructors model those behaviors, model those dispositions, that's the only way we're going to be able to change education as I see it. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's a top down um, that has to go with, I've heard power skills and professional skills, mm -hmm. well, kind of better terms to, to adapt the narrative for it. I mean, I think that's, I think that's important. You know, I think, um, especially from your end, you may be able to have a good um, balance between the two because you work so much with assessments in curriculum, but you also have this, this special ed, um, the behavior side of things. How do you, like, where do you see the balance at in reality right now, testing 80% SEL power skills, 20%, um, if, if that makes sense? Where do you see the kind of balance falling now? It's a total imbalance in anybody. I don't care who you are. And I've been, I worked on, the, I worked on some, um, the partnership with the Assessment of Readiness of College and Career, which is a park examination. I've worked on multi-state multi alternate assessment, uh, which was, uh, I think, called NICSIC, but it was for students um, who, were, um, who had significant cognitive disabilities. I've worked on, I still am a standing committee member for reading for the National Assessment on Educational Progress, the nation's report card. Anybody who builds tests will tell you, mm. tests are one small, tiny morsel of a measure of a student. Anybody who is in that world will tell you that yeah. all as many times as you want to. Unfortunately, some states sometimes build high stakes around these assessments, and that's just not what tests are supposed to do. It's not what tests are supposed to be created for. Um, I will say this, it's totally imbalanced right now, and one of my mentors used to tell me, um, his name is Bob Slavin, Robert Slavin. Uh, he does success for all and a whole bunch of other uh, amazing things over to Hopkins. He said that reading is political. Hmm. I kind of took it a step further and I said, assessment is political. Assessments are all political now. And we have to go back to making sure that they are one sliver of the pie of mm. the outcomes, outcomes. Wow. You know, we have to just go back to that idea of like re-envisioning, re-imagining. And the silver lining in all that's going on <clears> in this <throat> team space that we're in is that we have got to, we've got to, it's mandatory that we start reimagining what are assessments? What is instruction? What are these instructional practices that we have to enact students? And how do we get the best students to be the best citizens they can be? Mm -hmm. Well, and, and I, I absolutely love um, that what you're saying here, because you, you, you get a frontline view of what's going on with testing. Um, so let me ask you this, how are you able to impact this narrative or priority towards testing as a curriculum consultant um, and, and yeah, with, with different schools you're working with? It's super important that, this is so interesting because I get this question a lot. They see me as a young black man and just like, you know discrepancy tests and you understand how horrible and how discriminatory and how racially biased they've been. And I saw my role as um, someone who could really come to the table, come to the table and demand things. So a part of my, you know, I grew up in a black church uh, and a part of my narrative is understanding um, how, how my faith, how my religion, how my experiences in reading just Bible as literature, how that has kind of like billowed up in my life. And when Moses goes to Pharaoh, he doesn't go with just kind of like mm. shine 
and with, you know, like, oh, well, maybe we can do conviction. this. This is what it is. This is what I'm taking. This is what we're doing. Wow. And I, that's one of the things. And so I'm, I'm, I'm not as popular as I would like to be in this. <laughs> I'm always welcome because they need those voices and they appreciate those voices. And so to that, I'll say, I was one of the, I, I can't tell you the, the tests and the items and stuff like that, but I can absolutely tell you without a shadow of a doubt that I was one of those very few people saying, this is not culturally responsive. Mm. This is totally not the type of literature that students are going to engage with or experience after they graduate. So I really pushed in this idea of culture. I really pushed in a really good evidence base. I really pushed in authors that had never, ever, ever been asked to be on these assessments. And so that's one of my um, proudest moments, especially when it comes to assessments and how I use my power and influence to significantly change what was in front of students. Yeah, well, and you know, Brandon, to that point, they say the, the more people that don't like you, probably the better off you're doing. That's right. That's <laughs> but that's that's good. And I feel like that that is a positive that I just want to highlight there. Um, since I've been focused on education and really, I think your, your man, Lorenzo Hughes, pointed it out. There's there's such a big drive towards um, that diversity, equity, and inclusion, and people are really challenging to have the conversation. So even white people or these test makers or whomever that does not know, they're actually okay with having the conversation now. It's not, hey, we, we don't talk about race. Let's not talk about black, white. People are willing to have that conversation now because we're starting to see the disparities impact us significantly. Um, moving, moving forward from there and thinking about the testing and, and what you're doing there, now that we're moving to a place where we're not in school, mm -hmm. I know in South Carolina, I believe they just canceled um, EOC test. How can our students and teachers continue to build relationships and rapport while we're learning distance from distance? So one of the classes that I teach at um, Johns Hopkins University is Classroom Management One. And I don't talk about punitive measures. I, re I rarely get into classroom rules. It really is about building relationships and how do you do that? One of the things that I think that we have to do in terms of like, how do you continue to create these connections between school and family is making sure that we adopt this idea of by any means necessary. Just because you called once and they didn't pick up the phone doesn't mean mm -hmm. your job is done. It doesn't mean your job is done. You know, it, it means you have to pick up the phone. It means you have to call a few times. It means you have to send a newsletter. It means you have to send home, send, I mean, the postal service still works. All these things are still at our fingertips, mm -hmm. emails. Um, Zoom now, I, I mean, every, I should have totally bought stock in Zoom because now it's just like blowing yeah. up. <laughs> it might not be too late after this crash. It might not be too late. Uh, but I think that um, we have to become smarter on how we create these connected pieces to make sure that schools and families work together, which also kind of underscores this idea of incorporating digital literacy in the future. Hmm. Students who see digital literacy as their conduit by which they can kind of receive information. And we as educators have to get smarter. And kids aren't great at technology. You know, you hear that refrain all the time. They're like, oh, kids are so good at technology. Kids are good with like Instagram, TikTok, Snapchat. Like that's what kids are good at. They don't really realize there's a totally mm. discrete, like, uh, discrete skill when it comes to like reading something off an app and kind of enacting like these questions and answers digitally. And so it's super important that as we start to try to connect with parents, uh, legal guardians also, we show them, right, 
how do you create these or lessen these digital divides that we have through digital literacy? And so maybe it is coming up with a, a cool little YouTube. And I have these YouTube videos that are all over the place now uh, because a lot of the students don't get like what's in these grammar books. But if I can show it to them on a video, then they totally get it. And it's um, if you YouTube Colburn Classroom, Colburn Classroom, C-O-L-B-U-R-N, Colburn Classroom, uh, this gentleman has started an entire series, and I'm featured in a few of them, and I'm teaching grammar. And a lot of, and that's just one of the many ways that I can multiply represent this idea of learning. And so it's about connecting with parents through emails, through text, any, by any means necessary, yeah. but also building in the capacity where some parents might need extra technical assistance and training to really start to figure out their part, their part in this partnership, which is education. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that's very, very well said. And, and what I enjoy most is it's simple. These are yeah. all things that we're already using, the things that you're already doing to communicate with other folks. But but my thing is you have to put the person first. And, that's and, right. And I have a psychology background, and that's that's one just really simple piece that stood out to me in, in thinking about abnormal um, psychological disorders. That's not a bipolar person. That person has bipolar. That's not... Uh, you know, w whatever the case is, my student, the person comes first. And before I can talk to them about that pedagogy, I've got to know who you are. And same vice versa, the kids have to know who I am. Those That's right. First couple of weeks of school, I, I brought in um, a trophy this year <clears throat> from Toastmasters uh, Speaking Championship, and I brought a college football jersey that I had. And so I just, I came in, I did a show and tell with the kids, literally. I said, hey, you know, here's a little bit about me. I compete in this competition. I played football, you know, in college. And, you know, what questions do you have about me? Told a short story and let them ask some questions. Now they're not looking at me as Mr. G or they still see me as Mr. Gamage, but, you know, some of them will get a little slick and call me trash. <laughs> they're much more comfortable with me when they know that I'm not just a teacher, but I'm a person. You know, I'll go out there and race with them. I, I'm going to stop after this and let you go. I had a race because it was a good one. I bet seventh grade they um, – they wanted to race me and they were talking trash. So I said, look, I'll race you. And if one of you beats me, everybody gets to pie me in the face. But if oh. I you, I'm pieing everybody in the face. <laughs> of course, I had to dust the kids. I had to pie. <laughs> That's right. That's right. No easy win here. Don't take it easy on them. I, I got them on this side of Wakanda. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> pie them all in the face. But um, I guess my question really just is, like, <laughs> For teachers, um, you know, building those relationships, even if you're not a part of the culture, if you're a white teacher teaching at a predominantly black school or, you know, whatever the demographics are, what would you say is just the foundational piece that they need to um, operate in? I know we have any means necessary. What kind of, is that the mindset? Is that the attitude they have to have or is there anything else? I think that one of the mindsets, I think that's a mindset, but another mindset is there's two ways. And so they're not there just to receive information from you you're there to receive information from them also. And once you can humble yourself and be empathic to students, then you'll start to build those relationships. So it's just like what you said, you need to show, and, and uh, there's some things about uh, a person's identity that they feel uncomfortable showing, which mm -hmm. is, but if the students only see you as a teacher, and you know, they only think, you know, especially it's interesting, and I'm sure you've experienced this, when the students see you at, you know, a supermarket or convenience, yeah. They're just like, oh, <laughs> here, right? Because they think that we live in the school. They think that we right. like 
in the school. They, they don't know that we are other people outside of these buildings, out of these edifices. So it's super important to your point to make sure if you have a favorite sports team, if you went to Bowie State, if you went to Howard, Hampton, UMES, if you went to whatever, have a little flag or whatever mm -hmm. is in your room. You're like, show them who you are. It's like that, and I'm so on to, I just finished Black Panther again. So mm -hmm. the scene where the Queen Mother is like, as uh, T'Challa is fighting, she's like screaming, like, show him who you are. You have to kind of like present your identity for yeah. kids to be comfortable with you, number one, and for you to really substantially build those relationships. And so once you figure out, like, I'm not just here to teach them, I'm actually here to learn too, mm -hmm. it, becomes easier. it becomes so much easier. Yeah. Well, and I think, you know, and I, I, I know it's about time to wrap up, but I still got a couple more questions, so we'll keep rolling. You know, one of the things that I noticed, my first role, when I stepped, uh, I left a student affairs job as a residence life coordinator and stepped into consulting. And my first role was as an emotional coach for teachers. In my mm -hmm. first classroom observation, I went through this school, K K-10 charter school. Um, I went into each classroom and what I noticed was that teachers were reacting to students rather than responding to them. Once something happened in the classroom and messed up the whole lesson plan, they're flustered, can't teach the lesson anymore. And as I dug deeper, I started noticing that, you know, teachers have their own social history that's given them a baggage, bias, or blind spots that they don't even realize they're teaching to our kids. That's right. What say you about that um, with some of your courses that you're teaching? You mentioned classroom management teaching, and, and how are you preparing teachers to go into the classroom without some of these baggage that they have on them? So I teach a lot of things. So number one, I teach... So I was a Crisis Prevention Institute trainer, Nonviolent Crisis Institute. And so I taught a lot of stuff about haptics to kinesics and making sure that you understood your own fears, your own inabilities to make sure that you were self-aware because you have to understand your fear and anxiety first before mm -hmm. you start thinking through other children. Uh, so that's number one, understanding who you are uh, to prevent crisis. Number two, I see a lot of great work, especially from my colleague like Jessica Dulay uh, in DC, who's doing a lot of restorative justice, restorative practice work. And one of her things is that uh, before we get to the restorative circles, how about we do proactive circles? Mm. And so circle up in the morning, let's figure out, like let's do a climate check. Where are you all with your lives? Thumbs up if you are doing 100% well, halfway if you're like, I'm having an okay day here, is that I'm just not in the mood for it today. Yeah. And then we still don't ostracize this kid, right? Like we don't ostracize that kid. We, we proceed with the warm up, and then as I'm circulating the room, I go up to the kids who had this, and I say, hey, sweetheart, I saw your hand like that. What, what's going on? And mm -hmm. have a second conversation and figure out what's wrong. We're not doing a wow. – sometimes we're in this habit of automaticity of like, go, 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 go. Cover, 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 cover. Test, 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 test. When we stop, we start losing our humanity as teachers. Yeah. And if you lose your humanity as teachers, it's time for you to go. you got to mm -hmm. do something else with your life because you're going to screw up a whole bunch of kids on the way to retirement. Yeah. And so – of the things I'm huge on is, of course, we heard about like, you know, SWIFT and PBIS and CASEL. And, but I, to, to your point, we've got to get out of this reactive state of always trying to fix it after it's broken. Um, I'm a proponent of concentric circles and proactive circles. And so how do we build community before we even have a problem, before something happens? How do we kind of mitigate, de-escalate all the time as much as we can? Will things happen? Absolutely, because children are variables. You know, you just never know if they're hungry, if they're tired, if they got evicted first, you know, if they got an F on the test before they saw it. There's all these variables that happen with children. However, I 
because I've learned it, especially from practice in Baltimore City and in Montgomery County, if you are as preventative and proactive as possible, your job is so much easier and more pleasant. Yeah. Absolutely. Abs absolutely. When you take that time, um, the first couple weeks of school, and, and I've seen, you know, Kip Schools and Ron Clark and some other networks, they'll, they'll literally will take the first two weeks and not touch a book. Let's, let's talk about how to walk through the lunch line. I went to a Kip school, I think it was Kip Inspire or Vision in Atlanta. And um, it was, this is, this was last month. So it was March 8th or 9th. And the kids had new classes for fourth quarter. In their music class, the kids literally practiced walking into the classroom, onto the choir stand, out of the classroom and back. They would sing a song and continue to do that with the routine. When you have that expectation, there's nothing else that, that comes up to question. And I feel like even more so the expectation, um, when you have an expectation, you're teaching from minute to minute, there, there's no room for error. There's no room for um, kids to get out of place or doing something they shouldn't be doing. And as an instructional leader, it's super important that you understand that practice doesn't make perfect, practice makes permanence. Mm. So the more you practice it, the more permanent it becomes. There's always gonna be some imperfections. And I would even push upon this idea of, it goes beyond behavior. It can converge with science, technology, engineering, mm. art, reading, math, you name it. If you keep on practicing something, it becomes permanent in your disposition. It becomes right. In your countenance. And so, how can you take these ideas of practices or what I say at bats, like how many times you can be at bat? Yeah. Um, I'm like a fake baseball player. Uh, but how many times could you be at bat? And um, you just keep on practicing and practicing and practicing. But here's the thing about that in the practice, it does become mundane, it becomes a part of the daily quotidian, it becomes very monotonous. But as the instructional leader, as a teacher, as the professor, as whatever, you can't get tired. You have to push past your like, oh, I'm so sick of this. If I have to do this circle one more time, you have to see the value and see it as not just spending time, but investing time. Yeah, yeah, with, without a doubt, 100%. You know, I think that's, um, that's uber important for people to understand, like that relationship that you have in the classroom. And even, you know, I, I've, I've seen cases where um, it, it's a non-certified teacher, you know, but they have the highest test scores in the class or in the school because they understand that relationship building um, component to teaching. I, and also in, in my book, um, Every Decision Counts, mm -hmm. chapter one is called Failing Got Me Started. And oh, nice. It talks about failing as your first attempt at learning. And I, I make the example same. I, I dropped out of baseball in sixth grade when I started throwing that curveball. I couldn't. Uh <laughs> But your Hall of Fame batters hitting 40%, Michael Jordan's shooting 50%. I mean, they lose every other time. You know, it, it's okay to fail, fail big, fail forward, fail often. So um, I think that's a, that's a great piece right there, Brandon. Is there any final words that you want to leave with the people listening today? I just want to say stay encouraged, be an educator, know what that means, identify it for yourself, keep striving, keep pushing. And I know that sometimes, um, especially in these current times that we're in, it's super unpredictable, it's super scary, it's super nerve wracking. However, if we stick together, if we stick together in this process of making sure that kids get what they need, we're gonna come out for the better. Mm, mm, absolutely, absolutely. And, and where can we find you at on social media or any other sites you're at? I know you're probably on everybody's website already. Social <laughs> so I try to stick to the same social media stuff, 
Uh, but to make a really long story short, if you follow me on B as in Brandon, S as in Steven, C as in Charles, W as in Wallace, uh, and then A L L A C E. So B S C Wallace. You can get me on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, all that other good stuff. And I'm totally happy to support, reach out, help. I know I juggle a lot of balls, but if you're an educator serious about making your practice better, please reach out to me. I got you. And you know, I'm going to be the first person reaching out. So I'm ready for it. I'm ready for it. I'm ready for it. I absolutely appreciate you, Brandon, um, your time today and all the gems that you've dropped on us. And I also thank you today for listening to the Dash Podcast. This was an excellent episode. Go follow Brandon, listen to this episode. And if you like it, share it with your friend, share it with the educator who needs to learn more about building these relationships. Other than that, don't forget to go to TreyGamers.com and purchase your copy of Every Decision Counts and sign up for the Dash Podcast so that you won't miss any episodes. We will see you next time. This is The Dash.